Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 151, Paul Calling. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play a short message from a caller I cannot identify. It comes from the winter of 1990 and is two and a half seconds long. Let's listen. Paul Calling. This is another odd fragment from my answering machine that allows multiple interpretations. To my ear, the message says, Paul calling, which is confusing for many reasons. First, it would make more sense if the message said, Paul call me, which sounds similar, but that is not what I hear. Instead, it appears someone named Paul is calling me, which is possible, although I do not remember any friends named Paul from this time in my life. Another complication is that the voice sounds female, which would suggest someone with a name other than Paul, but it could also be a boy whose voice has not yet changed. With all these possibilities in mind, after listening to the recording several times, I think the most likely answer is that the caller was in the middle of saying, Paul calling you back, but the message was cut off after the word calling. Regardless of its interpretation, the message inspires a reflection on how exactly we determine gender on the telephone. This issue hits home for me because when I speak to various customer service representatives on the phone, I am often addressed as ma'am, even when they presumably have my name Paul right in front of them. It is not an uncommon problem. In a 1985 Dear Abby column, a 30-year-old man writes to complain that his voice makes him sound like a woman, to which Abby advises he contact a speech therapist. In my case, I rarely feel the need to correct the person on the line, since in general I embrace gender ambiguity. While acknowledging I have the privilege of being recognized as male, in most situations outside of my telephone voice. In some ways, the disembodied nature of the telephone voice prefigures the disembodied interaction through the Internet. As media scholar Jennifer Janicek has argued, this disembodiment leads to a heightened attention to vocal properties, a fact which became especially important for early telephone operators, whom callers depended upon before they had direct dialing, which was not widespread until the 1930s. Consequently, telephone companies dedicated significant resources to training operators, who by the late 19th century were predominantly women, on how to speak properly to customers. According to historian Michelle Martin, operators were drilled to repress any personal feelings in their voices, except those carefully taught by instructors. 
Training manuals for operators specified the importance of a low tone, clear enunciation, and a rising inflection intended to convey sympathy. This last element was probably especially important given the frustration people might feel working with a new technology, not unlike someone dealing with an internet or cable problem today. What's interesting is how the lessons taught to telephone operators influenced the discourse around proper telephone etiquette for general users. A writer from a 1905 issue of the Christian Observer mimics the operator's manual in recommending callers use a talking voice, pitched low, and endeavor to enunciate as distinctly as possible. Embodied in these recommendations, both for operators and the general user, is a disdain for the supposedly natural tendencies of a woman's voice to be shrill and hasty. At the same time, some writers argued that using the telephone would lead to a general improvement in users' elocution. A 1905 article from the trade journal Telephony titled, Telephoning Makes the Voice Soft, asserts, The telephone is giving the American voice a tone of culture and refinement. The result, which a generation of finishing schools have been trying to accomplish, has been secured for young women in a few years by telephone. In other words, the development of a telephone voice had elevated the overall quality of speech. The article continues, You can't possibly convey any impression over the telephone with fine clothes. Suppose the society leader goes to the telephone arrayed in a $2,000 gown and her priceless family jewels. What of it? The rustle of the silk, the cut of the gown, the blaze of her jewels, even her charming figure, they all are lost on the person at the other end of the line. With these conditions, she must depend upon her voice for the impression she makes. Once again, the message seems directed only at women, who must worry the most about creating a positive impression. On the other hand, in some ways, this seems to be an argument for the democratizing potential of the telephone. One does not need expensive clothing or jewelry to impress someone. It only requires developing a charming telephone voice. Of course, this democratic ideal is highly problematic, since the privileged telephone voice lacked any ethnic or working-class accent. One might think that more than a century after these rules for the telephone voice were developed, we no longer hold the same biases. But consider how standardized the voices are on public radio or TV news today. In these reporters and newscasters, you can hear the same discipline that was imposed on telephone operators from the 19th century. If you want to impose some discipline on this podcast, please contact me through my website, pfoch.com.
pfotsch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.